What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod. We're going to give you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. First, let me introduce you to my co-host Dave Martinson over there on the other side. I am Pat Sheehan. Dave, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. You snide fuck, you snide fuck. How's it going? <laughs> I'm good. We we got a packed show again today. We're going to be talking some some Joe Bros. We're going to be talking quite a bit of TV actually. We got Black Mirror, three episodes. We're going to be going through the whole season. Uh, Chernobyl, or if you're gonna, we, I caught up. I should say you were caught up in the moment with that, um, as well as of course Big Little Lies. Then we're gonna be talking a couple movies to end it, just to tease a little bit. One that I think we we both thought was pretty good, and one that I think most people thought was pretty bad. But before we get into any of that, please hit that subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube. Go to our SoundCloud, which is SoundCloud.com/nostalgiapod, and find any way to listen to the show that you would prefer. And also. Give us a five-star rating review on iTunes. All the feedback helps. All right, Jonas Brothers, happiness begins. Ten years. Come back. 2009. Lines, vines, and trying times. Their last album, and now happiness begins. They had a, it's weird. So they released a documentary with this, which I didn't get a chance to watch, but apparently it kind of details a bit of, I don't know if it's like a falling out is necessarily the way to put it, but like Nick and Joe seem to kind of be like dicking over Kevin in a sense, or over the last 10 years and now they're back together <laughs> i think that, that documentary is on prime right now and they jones Brothers obviously like, like split went on hiatus whatever when it happens to most boy bands at some point but they're kind of a unique case because they weren't put together on a reality show or matched up because they were all good at dancing or anything they're literally family right so kevin like he's the oldest one and he went and got married way back then and around that time like they split and i think it came out since that it was nick who was kind of like the the biggest star of, of, of the trio kind of wanted to split and branch off. And I know he, he had his own little group for a little bit. And then him and Joe just really had solo careers and Kevin just kind of fell off. And I mean, as we get into it, it's just kind of wild that Jonas Brothers are back more famous, more popular than ever before, which you don't usually uh, say when it comes to boy band comebacks, you know, like Backstreet Boys came back this year. NSYNC had a big moment. Uh, at Ariana's Coachella set, and apparently they were testing a reunion tour buzz. But Jonas Brothers coming back like they never left—it's kind of wild. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people tweeting about their upcoming concert, concert tours, and and things Arenas. like that. And yeah, it's crazy. They—I mean—they sold out MSG pretty quickly, which is obviously the biggest one by me. But the amount of stands out there for the Jonas Brothers all this time later is impressive. And they—they they dropped this album again. Happiness begins. And it's interesting because it, we heard the singles and I wasn't necessarily super excited for this album. Didn't really have high hopes in terms of this being like one of my favorite albums of the year, but I thought it could be a solid pop album. But the single Sucker, Cool, things like that, I was like, oh, this is, a, this is incredibly pop. This sounds like a bit of a departure from who they used to be. And I feel like that's kind of what the album is. It's just like... It's this very generic sounding pop rock, kind of just like cool pop rock in a sense, and really left me just kind of thinking, okay, this is a band that just wants to remain in that that sphere of being inoffensive, just kind of wants to play it safe in a sense. That's kind of what it felt like to me. How did you feel about this album? You know, the sound didn't really throw me off, even though it is a departure from the group's previous sound, because Nick... Nick's solo career, which you know was solid for a few years, Jealous was a big hit for him. That was all pretty 
standard middle of the road radio pop, you know, sex jams, you know, purity rings long gone, right? And then Joe, funny, like he was in that band DNCE, Cake by the Ocean, legitimate hit yeah. for him. And I was like, oh, wait, that's Joe Jonas. Like, I, I don't even know how many people realized that was him when they heard that song. And that was more like more of a carefree pop, a little. It, it, it doesn't sound like it was more from a pop band. Fine. But then he, hearing them come together on this, yeah, the, the, the soft pop rock that they used to have on some of their big hits, like like SOS, you know, like there's some like you hear, mm-hmm. you hear like heavy drums on those early Jones Brothers hits, right? You actually hear the guitars a lot. And now, I mean, you look at these credits, like Greg Kirsten on Happiness Begins. That shouldn't shock you if you listen to any of the early stuff, even the stuff he's not really involved. It just kind of sounds like it's informed of what mm. works today. And while I do think they, they, they try and explore some of their, you know, past decades of experiences on some of the, the slower songs, especially towards the end of the track list, there are a lot of songs yeah. that are just clearly attempts to become the next hit, become the next radio hit. But, you know... It's tough to, to blame them for that because, as we said, they're more popular than ever. But Sucker, the first single, which I was not a big fan of, I think I think it's it's fine, but really not for me. That was the number one song in the country, top of the Billboard chart. They had never done that before. They had a lot of legitimate hits back then, but they never actually went number one. And then their first comeback single immediately went number one. So it's definitely more in line with mainstream pop today than anything they had ever done before. So I guess that can be disappointing if you wanted them to be more artistic i do think there are a lot of bops on here though so i guess it really depends what you're looking for yeah what are those bops that stood out to you i think the clear highlight for me on the album is only human which is towards the beginning Mm -hmm. i just really like that beat and the lyrics they just kind of bounce bounce on that song it sounds really fun ultimately i think a lot of these like attempts at radio hit uh play attempts at hits your temperature might vary on some of these middle album cuts the songs that aren't uh trying to be more lyrical just because I honestly have a hard time telling the difference between Nick and Joe on this album. Hmm. You know, I, neither one is an amazing vocalist. They're both fine. They're both good enough. But ultimately, that was what took me out of it at, at points was that their vocals aren't strong enough to make up for songs that just compositionally are just okay or just whatever. Uh, but I, honestly, I, I was I was satisfied, you know, especially because my te- I was really low on sucker and cool. But then listening to the whole thing, I'm like, all right, there's, there's a little more here than I expected. And, you know, it'll placate the fans, as, as, as we know. So it's a very yeah, yeah very interesting I, situation. I think if anyone bought their, their ticket to see the Jonas Brothers live this summer, like the, when they first came out, they're not going to be disappointed by this album. I think enough of these songs are, are good enough to be enjoyable, especially live. I'm sure they'll add uh, a little bit more of a... Uh, a bite to them. Uh, I found actually the beginning of the album to be pff, sounding a little bit too samey in terms of uh, just like the rhythm of the songs. You know, they, they all seem to be kind of almost formulaic in a sense. I enjoyed, I think, the second half of the album a little bit more. Uh, songs like Trust and even the closing song, Comeback, uh, I thought was actually a pretty good ballad and a, a nice closer. I, I think there's enough here where people will, will be able to enjoy this, but I don't think this is going to be a very memorable album in terms of you know end of year lists or moving forward something people are going to come back to the Jonas Brothers their earlier work is really what I think will define them until they make that next great Jonas Brothers yeah. album who knows when that will be any last thoughts before we move on to Tyga <laughs> I, I I really am just genuinely impressed with how they've rocketed up their fame on this comeback maybe part of that is uh the significant others of Nick and Joe Sophie T and Priyanka but yeah 
I don't know. I, I actually enjoy enjoy them as celebrities, so I'm happy they're back. Yeah, they they made that uh, video of them on the boat uh, listening to Golden Hour, which I I stand for that. that There's video. the Game that, of Thrones bit one, so. too. Like they're funny. They're yep. self aware guys, so good for them. <laughs> yeah, they're fun. Let me move on to Rack City here for a second. <laughs> Tiger, the legendary T-Raw. album. <laughs> Man, first album since what 2016. Kyoto? Yeah, that, but right? I guess it depends who you ask because no one gave a fuck about that shit, man. Kyoto, oh. Bitch on the Shit 2, even the Gold album. Everything since 2013 that Taiga did was largely ignored because it was bad. Yeah. And Taiga as a celebrity was <laughs> waning at the time. So, yeah, I can't say I listened to Kyoto, but I read all the reviews and everyone said don't bother, and I didn't. So, But I've been intrigued. I've talked about this on the pod before. I've been intrigued with the prospect of a legitimate Taiga comeback. And that started last summer, about a year year ago now, when he dropped Taste with Offset mm-hmm. video. And that song is just a ratchet banger. The video applies, as you can imagine. And it just gives you shades of 2011 peak Taiga when he was, you know, truly the third pillar of Young Money with Drake and Nicki under Lil Wayne and make it nasty faded Mm -hmm. and rock city as you said were just top tier elite strip club anthems and taiga truly felt like someone who could dominate that space like a juicy j and while he didn't get more famous as a as a celebrity due to his relationship with kylie jenner which has its own issues we don't have to uh, adjudicate that musically he really just kind of fell off after hotel california but it was it was i guess i guess i just have a lot of nostalgia for that time in my life when I was bumping all the strip club shit when I was 18, but you know, I missed it. And I know a lot of other people that did too. So it was just mm-hmm. the prospect of the Taiga genuine, legitimately good comeback was just really intriguing. And I feel like we got, we kind of got some of that on this. I mean, what did you think? Cause I know you're not as big a Taiga fan as I am. <laughs> Old Taiga fan. Yeah. I enjoy his hits. You mentioned taste. I, I think that's a good song. By the way, taste over 630 million streams on Spotify. Yeah. At this point. Wild. That's insane. Rack City, you know, brings me back to senior year of college. A lot of nostalgia for that song. Now nostalgia hey, for Legendary. Subscribe. Not as much. I found this to be a pretty, I don't know. It, it's weird because I listened to this and T Grizzly back to back, right? And it, we're going to talk about T Grizzly in a second, but his voice is so like clear and sure. commanding and he comes through so hard. And then I listened to Tyga <laughs> and he, he, he just sounds like soft he just sounds like he's coming in like this and like mm-hmm. almost a- asmr after listening to, to t grizzly in a sense. he sounds like a guy who would get his girlfriend stolen by another rapper right <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yes absolutely so i i think i think for me i just found this to be there, there were moments i liked uh, there's some decent features on here but overall especially when he had to carry the song himself i was just kind of like this is a bit of a snooze fest for me yeah and i agree like tyga never p tie he never and this is sense of the mixtapes too i know there's a lot of tape heads out there for tiger the well done series and all that and he had a lot of fun freestyles and stuff on that i can't deny that but he's never had like a great project he never had the consistency to deliver a true project he's really been a singles artist a, a you know a hits artist right and i think just what stood out to me about legendary is not that it's a good album because i can't say that but there's enough of just tiger doing basic passable contemporary trap music that I'm like, all right, good. I'm just happy Tiger's back to like the bare minimum that we need him to be for people to pay attention. <laughs> and I guess that's like qualifying it really, really hard. 
<laughs> like if we're talking yeah. about this for any other artist, like that wouldn't fly. But for Taiga, I'm just like happy he's like approached back to his general peers, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it's passable. It's, it wasn't like a, the worst listen I've had this year. But there were, I mean, some of his lyrics, dude, are also just like mm-hmm. cringeworthy. On Stash, it's not the hallway, it's the whoreway. <laughs> I like almost threw my phone across the room. I was like, is this something this guy, dude, actually just wrapped? Like, ear cancer. <laughs> yeah, it just, I, yeah, exactly. I just couldn't take it. It also seemed like, you know, you mentioned those trap beats, and there are some on here, but it also seems like he was trying to almost bring a more pop type sound like that present kind of like i don't know like island influence sure. yep that, that makes sense into some of it and i was just kind of like all right like I, I get you're trying to like like you said bring yourself back into the moment but like it just felt like it wasn't necessarily something that was true to his identity but just just something more like ah this is what people like now so this will be listenable right the song that stood out to me was goddamn which he actually kind of previously yeah. put out but now it has an a boogie feature i like that i think like the bridge into the chorus on that Reminds me a lot of old school Tyga, so I really thought that was a fun song. Mm-hmm. But the problem ultimately is with this album is that nothing is as good as Taste, and Taste is already a year old. Yeah, the sh- I guess the shelf life of this comeback is maybe questionable. Um, mm-hmm. We'll see how any of these other songs perform. To Stash, as you said, man, everyone knows I love Blueface, but he gave his haters a lot of help here by totally ignoring the beat on that feature my god yeah. <laughs> i also thought little wayne on on me was sounded bored and also more high-pitched than i feel like i've yeah, ever heard him yeah. i don't know if that was little wayne bored. But I just kind of like okay. sounds like this decade yeah <laughs> any features other than those two that are even worth mentioning to you you know him and chris brown say what you will about chris brown i'm certainly not a fan but him and chris brown have always kind of had a good chemistry both the mixtapes mm-hmm. and then fan of a fan album and I think that definitely will probably resonate with some of his fan, some fans. But like I said, it, it's borderline passable enough to at least make me click on the next next song, which yeah. was not where he was just a year or two years ago. So I guess it's a success. <laughs> Tiger's on the rise. All right, well, why don't we talk about that T Grizzly album, Scriptures? Grizzly Gang, dog. His fourth album, from what at least from what I could tell, some of those are tapes. But yeah, he's he's been pretty prolific in the past two years. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of crazy because I remember talking about him as a potential XXL freshman, yeah. freshman, I think when we were first starting out as a podcast, but two years ago? Uh, Yeah, I think we, first day out had come out and we were like, 2017, is it too early? He doesn't make it. And then I, I think we, we both were certain he would make it last year and it, it really feels like he just turned it down because I can't see how they didn't offer it to him. But yeah, it feels like he's been, he's been since been passed over, but you know that's there's the, this is his fifth project since 2017 so he's doesn't seem to be wasting any time and how did you feel about scriptures as a project in a whole uh, we weren't really planning to to give this much airtime but you know just cuz i think t grizzly is an we i mean we didn't cover still my moment his second project from last year and, and the reason for that is you know t grizzly he's a solid artist you know he reps the d he's a gruff mm-hmm real guy and i feel like he brings that out in terms of like those true street lyrics and he can really t- uh, tell you his story which he he's got a lot to tell for a young man but it's always kind of sounded a bit same i think that was a bit of our criticism with activated his debut album and it just i i wasn't expecting him to truly like branch out i feel like i was expecting this scriptures project to be more of the same so thus we probably wouldn't have anything new to add we're still mm-hmm. fans of t grizzly there's probably some stuff you'll like on here but shockingly, I feel like 
T Grizzly actually switches it up a lot more than I expected on here. There's definitely some influence from Lil Durk, his uh, Illinois compatriot, who he collabed with on the Bluetooth tape, as well as obviously Juice World. Songs like uh, Locksmith, where T Grizzly starts singing. And he literally acknowledges it. And it's like, Tree Grizzly, why are you singing? And he's like, suck my dick or whatever, right? And it's like, <laughs> it's like, oh, so T Grizzly, he, he is interested in perhaps switching up his sound, at least give, making himself a little more viable to a, a larger audience. It's just an interesting premise. I did not expect that from him, given he's a, you know, he's a street dude. But uh, yeah. it kind of surprised me. And I actually like Locksmith, you know, for, for the type of song he's trying to be. Um, and what did you think? Did you pick up on those lane shifts a little bit? Yeah, I don't. I don't think I'm tuned into T Grizzly enough to be probably aware of those sort of changes. I don't. I, I will say I hardly ever listen to him. But what <laughs> I, I mentioned that last on our Tiger review that just his he comes through so clear, it, and he comes through with such authority on his songs. I think that's what I really enjoy is like even if I don't like the beat, which I actually really liked a lot of the the beats on this, but he just brings such an energy to it that's hard to to knock it. I, I mean, I think something we critique a lot or at least i critique a lot of rappers for is not having a ton of different topics that they like to rap about and i think he kind of does fall into that category but i don't knock him for that because it doesn't seem i don't i don't hold into the steam of of i think some others just because he's not as established and it seems like he's still coming up like you said a couple songs did stand out to me on this scriptures i thought was pretty good i thought like the the beginning couple songs weren't weren't great but the ending track with a boogie I actually really liked a lot. Um, I felt I I thought this was a good um, good weekend for for Abe because it seems like yeah, for sure <laughs> you know the the two tapes we just talked about he he's really stood out to me and we for someone that we reviewed what like a year and a half ago two years ago and we were yep. this project's pretty good yeah. and I really liked it he seems to be skyrocketing into a more and more famous artist every time we listen to him yeah given hoodie season came out end of december which is a bad time for us we skipped it but i mean that album was massive and he he truly is a huge star and a important feature for someone to get you know honestly t grizzly having a song with a boogie and ynw melly i was like that's quite the combo definitely two guys that don't sound like grizzly at all right. but they mesh pretty well i also really liked had to uh, i thought that was or yeah I had to add me up i wasn't as big of a fan of yep. but i had to i thought it was great yeah, overall, it's just interesting to hear the the changes, as I said. But, I mean, you're right. He still is kind of limited in his scope, but at least it's you, you can have a long-ass career just speaking to speaking to the streets. Sure. You know? and, and now if he's going to try and do that from the little Dirk angle as well as the Chief Keef angle, I think there's a, hmm. a lot of potential to keep going. You know, it's weird. He's never really been a true, like, chart mover, a true, a true unit pusher in his short career, but... I'm still holding a hope that he could really have a, a big hit. But even if he doesn't, I mean, like, he was on featured on Shit Real, that J-Rock uh, bonus track from last year. And that was just a hard-ass feature. I feel like, as you mentioned, his voice, his persona, even small doses, just can really come across as something at least a little unique, even if the lyrics can be hit or miss. So, yeah, still in on T. Grizzly. Someone I don't know if I'm in on or not, and I actually wasn't very aware of, was Casey Veggies. I was, I think somewhat aware he was uh, involved with odd future to an extent but i don't think i've heard anything about him other than that he's been attached to odd future in the past and now that odd future isn't really working together anymore in that sense i don't, I don't know if we can say that they dissolve but they're currently dormant in terms of what they're putting out together what's right what has he been doing i mean we're, we're, it seems like he had a project earlier this year we didn't talk about he um i think it was just a 
some of these early songs. But Casey, yeah, Casey Veggies is, is a very interesting guy to me just because he is someone who got a really nice start right away. I want to say he was like maybe 18. You know, he's a contemporary of Tyler. And as you said, Odd Future Connection, he was he's featured on Odd Toddlers off Bastard, Tyler's debut tape. He was a actually a early Odd Future member who left the group and became kind of an affiliate, still their friend, like uh, the way Vince Staples operated hmm. around OF. And around that time, as you can imagine, with the, the way those circles were moving in the beginning of the decade, he became uh, friends with Mac Miller. And he was an opening act on the Blue Slide Park tour. And that's actually how I became aware of Casey Veggies is I've seen, I saw him live. I also saw him a second time open up for Big Sean. And I believe he got affiliated with Rock Nation and Jay-Z. And people are like, all right, Casey Veggies, LA artist, broke off from my future right away to be a solo artist, be his own guy, riding around town, kind of an early internet hit for him. But what's going to happen? And it just, it just never really, it never really went anywhere. It was very interesting. And like, he would just kind of be dormant for times and, we dropped some projects like uh, the Rocky Fresh collab project and Fresh Veggies and like there's good stuff on there, but he never really grew that audience beyond like the internet, like in the know people that knew about him. And I would just find it very interesting because it just definitely felt like he missed his moment, missed his chance. And he definitely seems to reflect on this, this new album, Organic. He never really had a, had a hit to speak of. So that's kind of why most people weren't aware of him. And probably why you had really hadn't heard of him in several several years. <laughs> so, what do you think of this organic, this new Casey Veggies album? Yeah, what stood out to me right away was the strength of the features. Getting a game feature, yeah. getting YG, getting E forty, really affiliating yourself with California mm-hmm. for sure. But given his, I assume his status with his label is not good, given that he hasn't his career hasn't really grown that much. I wonder if he had to pay for those himself. I'm kind of curious mm. about that. But that, that that stood out to me just because, like, that that shows like a you know he's really he's really trying to grow. And I think these songs they sound a lot like Casey's songs. Like I don't know if I heard a hit on here, but at the same po- same time, it did feel like he was kind of adapting to the way West Coast music sounds right now, West Coast rap. And I think that is a good development, given that he was also kind of just doing his own thing the past few years, and thus not really ad- adopting any trends and it still sounds like a Casey project so it doesn't it's not like he sold out or anything but I thought it was just okay which I think is again the problem is he needs something to really pop mm-hmm. for him and he's young he's like 20 24 or something but despite being around a long time but it just feels like this is not gonna help him pop and I feel like he's, he's needed that for a while I mean, what do you think yeah I think your thoughts characterize a lot of what I felt I, there wasn't anything that I felt was super memorable other than uh, the song Mirage, which I thought the beat on that was really cool. And it actually reminded me a bit of like a Earl Sweatshirt type uh, sound in a sense. Early colleague, it makes sense. I I felt like the YG feature um, I came up was really solid. But then E-40 comes in and all respect to E-40, he sounds like he's on just a different track or like he recorded this and then they like try to put him over it because he just does not fit into that song at all. I did like uh, Stop Playing with Dom Kennedy. I thought that was one of the better earlier songs on the album, but I don't know. I, it's, I just didn't find much to be too memorable. And for an artist that I obviously wasn't aware of before, nothing here is really going to make me come back and, or dig deeper into his, his catalog at this point. You know, I, I thought he had a hit back in 2014, Backflip with YG and I Am Sue. 
I like that track a lot. I think that song is really fun. And that song, I feel like that came out now. If that song came out maybe under a different name, that would have been a, that would have been a hit. I think he actually performed it on I want to say 106 in Park or some some one of those revival shows. He performed it live like on TV. And it's like they definitely the Rock definitely pushed it and tried to make that song hit. It just didn't work. And for a guy who's been around a long time and still grinding, again he acknowledges that a lot. I think maybe if he keeps going, he doesn't tell he's failing or anything, it'd be okay, but I don't know. So I was a fan for a very long time, and I've customized Greatly Tapes. Like I, There's a lot of tracks in there I really like, and he, it just feels like he never moved past that early success. It's just, I don't know, it just kind of feels, I don't know, a little, a little disappointing, a little sad when I when I hear nothing I see going to push it forward. So, I don't know. I de- definitely give him a shot that you never heard him before. I think he you know, he does sound have a bit of a unique voice for a West Coast guy. Just my last thought on him is that he's still really young. He's like, I think, 25. So he's got some time to hopefully yep. figure this out and, and write the ship. I think there's potential. And if nothing else, he has a good eye for his album covers because awesome album cover. Looks really great. Moving on to Big Little Lies. Dave, a uh, question for you. Uh, why are the most beautiful things also the most dangerous? Thoughts from a... Mm. <laughs> Who are you trying to Th- kill? Th- thoughts from a 12-year-old on Big Little Eyes. Pretty heady stuff there. The the return of uh, one of the biggest hits of 2017. Two years later, we yeah. got Celeste and... I'm, I'm going to forget all their names now. Uh, Celeste. Renata. Renata. Yeah, Renata is probably my favorite one. Uh, um, Abigail. Bonnie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forget the names, I forget too. the names. I know the Yeah, actors. exactly. We, <laughs> we, we, we got Reese, Zoe Kravitz, Laura Dern. <laughs> Uh, Nicole Kidman, Shailene Woodley, uh, just just an all star. Now Meryl Streep, yeah, Meryl Streep added to this cast. What what were your general thoughts of Big Little Lies season one? Yeah, I, I think I liked it more than you. I had it in my top ten mm-hmm. of the year. It's funny the show was billed as a limited series because it was based off the Leanne uh, Moriarty book and just kind of followed that very very closely and followed the length of the books. So it's like there's no book left and. You know what swept? I think one of the eight Emmys. You know, yep. a huge Emmy hit for HBO, huge ratings hit for HBO. You know, I think it occupied, it occupied like that True Detective time we had this year, that early year, like the first buzzy show. It's a it's a good window if you have have good material, and it de- definitely had a cinematic feel to it. You know, given that it's the peak TV ways go, you just have a bunch of movie stars in the show playing off each other, chewing scenery. It's just a lot of fun. Yeah, and. That's why I really liked it. I hadn't read the book, didn't really know what was going on. But, you know, I liked, I thought most of the characters were given a lot to do with the exception of Bonnie. And it does seem like they're making a concerted effort to give Zoe Kravitz more to work with in season two, which is, which, which is great. But yeah, I was, a, I like season one a lot. And I was not um against season two happening. We've been talking about this a lot with shows like Barry and Killing Eve. Like, does a second season need to exist when the first one was so high? And I feel like, it's almost more egregious now because it was literally billed as limited series and took advantage of that in the awards run. Like, if this went up in a drama, would it have got Emmys over Handmaid's Tale? That no, that was Handmaid's Tale season one. Uh, who, who's to say? But yeah, I'm happy it's back just because I like watching all these stars play off each other. Now we have Meryl Streep in this. Yeah. Like season one for me, I I think it it was kind of like uh, kind of like learning to like vegetables in a sense, and, and that's not maybe the best comparison but I'll, I'll pull it back i swear so like you know when you like when you're a kid you in, at least most kids usually don't like certain types of vegetables but as over time like you're kind of forced to eat them so you really learn to love them i think for me it was like we were spending time with these ultra rich super douchey 
just like horrible people and i was like man i can't, I can't really get behind yep. this and then just the more and more i like yeah. accepted the campiness and, and like how uh awful these people were just to each other and what they were doing and like found the humor in it i think that's when i really started to enjoy season one and that's why i was actually excited for the show to come back like you i didn't really have an issue with them having a second season i think if if we just get to see reese witherspoon and laura dern just like be super ridiculous and uh you know outlandish in terms of their behavior and these amazing uh ultra rich settings just doing the most catty stuff possible i think that that's enjoyable and then you add meryl streep into it you know who uh, we'll talk about a little bit more in a second but she seems like she's really bringing a different element into the show it's going to drive the plot a lot and give her a lot of moments to just be ultra ridiculous <laughs> we already had one of those moments in the first episode I, th- I think it's just there's a lot of fun stuff there to enjoy from scene to scene so yeah why don't we talk about the premiere what what stood out to you what were what were the maybe the new things for this season that you're you're looking forward to right yeah it's in a sense the the season two premiere is a lot like the beginning of season one and reese literally says that it's like we get to go get our mom points cards yeah. again or whatever right reestablish themselves and I, I, as you were saying like i think it may, the show might could put off people just because you're talking about super super wealthy yeah. waspy people who have all these social issues yet they still live on the fucking pacific coast highway right like they literally drive across the bigsby yep. bridge during the normal days like it's it's tough to feel bad for yeah. people like that right but as you said just, just just lean into it and you have a good time and I think this premiere does a lot of this does a lot to reestablish uh, what we liked about season one, while also I think pretty tactfully setting up mm-hmm. what's to come. Like Meryl Streep doesn't come out guns a blazes in a in in the obvious sense in terms of just pointing fingers and accusing people or, or really doing anything like that, right? It's very it's very slow played, very meticulous, and. She still has standout moments, of course, when she totally dresses yeah. down Reese. For being and short. Of course, when she has the... the <laughs> right. And yeah. just being untrustworthy, like, <laughs> wild stereotype. But, of course, the scream moment, which is, yeah. is becoming a meme. And season one was a meme factory in its own right, right? But I really like how, how, how they're playing that. Because once you knew that she was playing Skarsgård's mom, obviously the antagonist, mm-hmm. she's an antagonist, we know that. But I like how they're going with that. And also, again, setting up Bonnie as the one who is the only one apparently feeling any grief or remorse, considering she was the one who actually did the deed and killed Skarsgård, mm-hmm. pushing him down the stairs. And given the concerns that even Zoe had mentioned in a certain sense that she was given less to do and kind of felt like the fifth wheel in a certain sense, truly bringing her in, I think, is smart. And Renata, Laura Dern, is just kind of part of the crew, at least for now where she was almost like a tertiary antagonist for parts of season one. So I like where it is from a plot perspective. And of course, I already like all these performers. So yeah, I'm just very excited. Yeah, I think think the plot is set up to be uh, even more fun than the first season. I do think eventually it's going to become Renata versus Madeline again, you know, Laura Dern versus Reese, which I'm totally fine with. I mean, just in this one episode, Madeline was fighting with, Mary Louise, um, the the principal of the school with Abigail, with her ex-husband, like she was just like she was out for war, out for blood uh, with pretty much everybody. I think it's it's going to be a really interesting season. See how they juggle all these 
the, the time that everybody gets in a sense, because if you think about it, like you mentioned Zoe Kravitz kind of being that fifth or sixth wheel, and, but the show kind of needed that because of how much they were trying to explain about all these different characters and how they, how to pull it together at the end. Now, if you're going to pull her more into the mix and give her more time, plus Meryl Streep, that's seven people that they're trying, seven different characters trying to give a decent amount of time to. And it also seems like they're trying to give um, James Tupper a little bit more time, trying to like figure out how to support Bonnie um, as, you know, Nate, um, Madeline's ex, ex-husband, um, right. who had an incredibly strange interaction with Adam Scott's uh, Ed. <laughs> yeah. but like it's also just fuck. like what a bizarre request like hey i i can't i can't emotionally support yeah, my wife really so weird. can you the husband of my ex-wife support my current wife for me that's such a bizarre bizarre request <laughs> you know it also looks like they're setting up uh, renata's husband yeah to be more involved and even if that's a, a plot line that ultimately gets completed it, it's still just adding the layers mm-hmm. i think is just just fun you know and uh Skarsgård, from what we know is a series regular for this season so it seems feels like his presence in the flashbacks and nightmares that uh kidman is having seems like that's going to continue and it's not just going to be glossed over it's not just straight up replaced by his mom he's still definitely a presence on the show which is definitely interesting mm-hmm. we'll see how that um translates um it's also you know interesting at least for me like Catherine newton who plays reese's daughter her star has risen a lot, so it's kind of cool just seeing her just come off the bench once in a while because she's also quite talented. And also, Charlene's kid, who I don't think we even saw in the premiere, uh, Ziggy, is played by Ian Armitage, who became an overnight star because he's fucking young Sheldon. Like, he's just he just plays Charlene's kid in this show, you know? Like, it's kind of wild how much talent there is. Yeah, I think we only see him for, like, one second when he's, like, dancing to a song, which I, I can't remember which song it is. But, yeah, I think overall... the Big Little Lies, especially with coming back after two years, is set up to be a, probably one of the most fun shows of the summer. And if if you have the time and for some reason you're behind on it, you didn't watch it over you know the, the last two years, I would say catch up just so you can follow along because there's going to be so many memes and gifs and just things on the internet about this. It's it's worth it just for that because the conversation with this show doesn't just stop after it airs, which is, I think, one of the amazing parts about a show in, in the current monoculture yeah for or lack of monoculture for sure also i gotta shout out uh that quick br- quick montage of sorts of uh charlene dancing on the beach to the sufficient yeah. steven song mystery of love from call me by your name i was like yeah way to bring this song back in my life hell yeah loved it great great song also we, we love that movie go check out that review hell yeah chernobyl another hbo miniseries uh although i don't think this one's getting a sequel dog um <laughs> uh so th- this Chernobyl is a two, uh, five three mile mini- island <laughs> yeah this is a, a five episode miniseries aired on hbo um wrapped up about two weeks ago i just got around to finishing it this past weekend uh and there was a lot of buzz around this show and i think rightfully so um this is i think what miniseries can be at their best uh in terms of planning out and structuring the story you want to tell and how you want to tell it um and i think also getting performances out of actors that feel real but also entertaining because i i think the first episode specifically i was like a little unsure until like the ending 
Um, because I was like, this is, I mean, at, once the explosion happens and then it's a lot of people in like boardrooms, like talking about things, I was like, oh man, it's going to be, it's going to be a bit of a grind. But then the way that the show is paced, the way that they, they put these, or they talk about these people in these incredibly terrible and like nightmare situations and how they're dealing with things. Um, I was just really, really impressed. And the show basically after a couple months of that first episode really never lost my attention which I think is kind of cool for a story that most people are at least aware of, um, but really uncovered so much more for me. How did you feel about uh, Chernobyl? Oh, I completely agree. I think it's truly just one of those miniseries that earns the cinematic label that we maybe often overuse when we talk about well-produced television and I mean, the cinematography really stands out in, in a unique way. Like the, the, the production really captures the initial disaster of it all. And then, of course, the fallout, which is I guess, perhaps the more the more interesting stuff to get into. But I don't know. I think it just it really made you feel like you were in Pripyat, Ukraine. And like that's a I think Chernobyl as as a phenomenon you know it's been I mean, we had the chernobyl diaries horror movie from a few years ago that wasn't very good and i remember i had always read and been interested in like chernobyl tourism and how that actually works and stuff and of course i played all gillied up in call of duty 4 you know i, I had been there with the with the, with the sniper rifle right <laughs> <laughs> so like i feel like chernobyl is not it's not like a, like a secret or a story that was, was unknown to people similar to i guess the central park 5 netflix show that just came out uh when they see us from Ava, um, but seeing it, the story told and dramatized in such a professional way is ultimately really rewarding because, I mean, the applications to uh, what what went wrong and how that you can play that off on today in terms of, like, the failures of leadership and stuff, it's uh, it can be a tough hang at times, but I also feel like it's kind of rewarding, and it's tough to say that about most miniseries, especially historical ones. You know, there were a lot of really good performances in this. I feel like uh, Jared Harris really blew me away. Him and Stellan Skarsgård together, I felt like, carried most of the show. Um, and obviously, they were the two main characters at the center of the the aftermath and how they were, were dealing with this, this crisis. Um, yep. But I really felt like not only their relationship throughout the show like kind of how they're i guess you could even say like friendship i'm not sure if they would describe it that way but the way that the show portrays is that they develop this friendship uh as the series goes on and, and this trust between them and then how they deal with especially the end like how they tell the world about what happened i thought was just really well done both of them gave great performances also emily watson who played uh ulana a made-up yep. fictional character which they address at the very end of the show um I thought she gave a really strong performance. It's easy to really like her character because she's uh, by far the most moral one and the one who seems like the most competent. And she's characterizing, you know, dozens of scientists who were helping out um, at this. I do feel like they could have picture or uh, gave that picture a little bit more because it made it seem like they really put this in the hands of like three people in a sense. And I was like, this is like, this is a lot. And I feel like they could have even made like, ulana into like maybe two or three characters to really try to portray this uh, that that aspect a little better um and they obviously you know especially the last episode they i think they changed up some of the um 
some of the events of that to make it a little bit more dramatized. But overall, it seems like this was a fairly faithful telling um, of the events as far as we know. And uh, I, I give them a lot of credit for that. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think there's a few composite characters, which is just bad necessity. Of course, you got to do that sometimes. No problem there. Um, but, you know, you I mean, seeing having Gorbachev actually be in the show and, and really, I, I really think they, they do a great job, even from the first episode, of capturing kind of the, the, the fallacy of the, the Soviet Union's uh, mantra. Mm-hmm. And I think Donald Sumter's character, who plays like that, um, I, I don't even know what his role was. He was just at that board meeting beginning on the side, the guy with the cane. Oh, yeah. You know, he's like some kind of high guy in the party. And he just spews the Kool-Aid, right, in such a confident way. And everyone gets up and cheers. And I think it just really captures how something that's, uh, you know, a regime that was supposed to be pro-people was really just anti, anti the public, right, in terms of how he was just advocating for straight up just lying to the public and cutting off the phone lines so they don't even say anything to anyone else. Like, capturing that, and then again, the failure of leadership as we get further along, it's just... It's it's tough to watch because as you're watching it, you're you're seeing how these these people are fucking everything up, and then you're all we're also seeing the other side of the coin, right? We're seeing everyone who's affected by it, and the animals and the people, and how they have to evacuate, you know, all that shit. It's just it it, it really carries attention in a in a smart way, which again, it's hard to do for a historical event that people widely understand. Uh, also, shout out uh, Beard Logan, <sighs> beat me to it. Role. Love. Love him, and of course, uh, David McKelton, the guy who plays Bruce Bolton mm-hmm. on Thrones, yep. who's the prosecutor. Uh, I obviously love those guys. Yeah, but yeah, uh, love Chernobyl, man. Really came out of nowhere. We we were not sure if we would even cover it, but it really caught on and became a bit of a sensation, uh, a cult hit, yeah. which is impressive given that it was running. Or maybe maybe because it was counter Thrones programming in the beginning that mm. it, <laughs> it succeeded in such a way. But yet another hit for hbo and frankly one of the most unexpected yet absolutely definitely recommend chernobyl black mirror we've reviewed black mirror quite a few times uh on here we talked about bandersnatch just earlier this year talked about every season that that's come out as it's come out and now this is what season six of black mirror mm-hmm. um five uh, season five, five. Yeah, but with two specials White Christmas and Bandersnatch. Yeah, it, well, what White Christmas? I know it was a special, but I I, I think about it just as part of season four at the, or se- season two at this point. I'm sorry. Correct. Same. Uh, anyways, this is a, a quite an interesting Black Mirror season to me. Uh, I think because Black Mirror had been almost expanding as they moved to Netflix and were kind of just dropping all the episodes at once. We had seen the seasons grow for the most part. I think the last one, season four, actually dropped six. Uh, episodes including san junipero and and three yeah. they're both six episodes which and one of those was uh you know a, a television or a tv movie basically won the emmy for best tv movie san junipero um so we, we were really getting more and more black mirror then we get bandersnatch which panned by most people uh i think we we talked a lot of the issues go check out that review to hear more about that uh, was supposed to be part of the season then the the showrunners decided that it didn't really make sense to put it together because there was just so much there depending on like what what courses you take what decisions you made within the the, the show right so we got actually it's like five and a half hours 
of, of content, Bandersnatch. It's a lot. So it makes sense. So after Bandersnatch, which is mostly panned, with only three episodes, and I say only three, I mean any Black Mirror we get is usually higher quality TV than most of the things that, that come out. It felt like these episodes had to be pretty much no brainers. And, and I mean, you got a lot of, you got some big stars in this. You got Anthony Mackie, uh, Miley Cyrus, Andrew Scott in these episodes. So it was feeling like they must feel pretty confident in the three that they're dropping. Dave, do you feel like this these three episodes kind of lived up to the quality that Black Mirror has been has been known for? Yeah, I think over uh, vaguely, yes. I mean, I know it was because of Bandersnatch. Because Series 5 was only three episodes, like the first two series, I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, they're just going to focus on the concepts and not over overdoing anything. I think the overall criticism of Seasons three and four, the first two since the show was acquired by Netflix, uh, was that, you know, some ideas, some concepts just feel a little half-baked or undercooked in the sense that the, the, the concept might be sound, but it just might not be enough to truly make make, make an episode. Episodes like Men Against Fire, mm-hmm. for example, stand out like that. And overall, I, I, I can't say I've ever disliked an episode of Black Mirror. It just inherently as an anthology, some episodes just work better than others some episodes completely work right like sanju and Pero or be right back entire history review so episodes like that just are completely knockout right and there's other episodes that are you know mostly mostly good and have plenty of fans in their own right like the next few tiers down right and i think uh this series this series five ultimately feels like it's kind of in the middle tier where i think you can you you can appreciate all three of these episodes for what they're doing but none of them stand out as true knockouts. And I don't think any of these will even have the virality of, say, a Hang the DJ did last yeah. season. But that's okay. I feel like ultimately like it's hard to have every one of these be, be, be a knockout. You have to write a completely new story every time in a completely new world. You know, There's really nothing compounding on each other in this show, despite what the Easter eggs might make you think. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, was, I was satisfied. You know, I, Again, I'm just a fan of the show. And Black Mirror's at its best when it's describing and exploring how technology humanity interact not about the technology itself so i actually kind of like that these three episodes largely tone down the the wild tech you know there's nothing super futuristic about any of these episodes you know we got ai we got vr i don't know i think vr vr where your your whole body experiences the sensations of the game is pretty pretty futuristic sure but it's just an extension of things we already understand Sure. Right? It's kind of like metalhead. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, Boston Dynamics has those wild robots. They'll kill us one day. Okay, let's do an episode where they kill us. Right. You know what I mean? So yeah. I don't know. I, I Ultimately, every technological conceit in this series feels grounded in something we already understand. I, I agree for the most part. I do think there's one episode that is head and shoulders above the other two here. And for me, that's the second episode with Andrew Scott. Um, actually, I, I didn't raise this. Smithereen. Yeah, Smithereen. I thought... That one was by far the strongest. Um, one, I think, having Hot Priest, Andrew Scott, coming off Fleabag Season 2. Yeah, great timing. He's just on a heater right now. Um, I'm buying a lot of Andrew Scott stock just because it seems like whatever yeah, whatever he's given as a role, he just knocks out of the park. And I think he really uh, delivers on the emotional heft of this character who's ridden with guilt. Uh, by checking his phone leading to a car accident and killing his fiance um, and feeling like he never uh, 
could t- could tell anybody about it until he gets to this point in his life. Um, makes this horrible decision. Right. Also get Topher Grace in that episode, which I mean, uh, he comes in about three fourths of the way through as uh, Billy Bauer, uh, <laughs> but. Yeah. Jack Dorsey. Yeah, basically. But I, I think he I think he knocks it out of the park in that role. Like it's it's pretty funny when you see him there meditating and there's like uh oh, there's a situation we gotta tell you about. It's just like fuck. <laughs> like it's so right. good. Yeah, I think that's also my favorite episode as well. I just don't think it need to be seventy minutes long. I think a lot of the stuff once we're in the car in the standoff spin spun wheels in a certain sense because we were still getting up to the twist or revelation that it was andrew scott who who actually killed his mm-hmm. wife right and like it's it, he's doing this because of guilt not because of you know any true demands or anything um i think it just could have been a little tighter is all but you know i i like that the it's funny because i think it, it almost sets up a red herring early in the episode where you feel like andrew scott's animosity towards uh smithereen the, the, this you know facebook twitter conglomerate is that people are always you know addicted to to this networking right and you know you see him uh kind of revile at the the woman he had just slept with when she's trying to log into like the facebook for her, her dead kid right and then he's always mad about people being on their phones and just clearly looks you know looks uh against it and it sets it up oh look this guy is just anti uh glue to the phone behavior we can totally sympathize relate with that today makes sense but no it's actually totally flipped around so i I think think that episode was really smart because yeah it's nothing it's nothing that wild like that episode could have happened happened to happen today there's nothing really futuristic about it to be honest you know a lot of easy stuff to comprehend there um i like the miley cyrus episode just because i really liked miley i thought she actually was quite compelling in her two roles as a a kind of meta role as a overexposed pop singer, and then also as the AI version of her of herself. Yeah. Um, I I don't know if there was any like maybe lesson or or even real conceit with that episode, but it was just kind of fun. I don't know. And actually, I think the first one kind of wore on me the most. Um, Striking Vipers, aka Street Fighter, just because I feel like I kind of saw where it was going, and there was really no further buildup after the initial revelation that they were having sex in the VR. And like once we got that, it was just kind of more of that. And we got the ending, which isn't quite a happy ending like Sandra Napero, but is not really a sad ending either. Yeah, it's I just sweet. kind of feel like that episode crested, crested early. Yeah. And it, 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 was, it was solid, but, you know, that's all. Yeah, my, my issue with Striking Vipers, and I do want to talk a little bit more about... Um, rachel jack and ashley too um is i felt like striking vipers similar to what you said about episode two being 70 minutes we probably could have cut striking vipers down about 10 minutes as well um i i got enough scenes of them going into the game and making out uh and you know leading to hot hot sex between these these two fighters um shout out man yeah <laughs> to um to, to kind of get the point and, and kind of see and i felt like it didn't really add much other than seeing um yeah what's his name yaya mateen the second's character uh abdul mateen black manta yeah, fall more in in love with uh, anthony mackie's character that and, and that episode almost in a sense felt a bit like a black mirror like parody episode in a way like if someone was gonna like 
make a Black Mirror episode that was just trying to be like a parody, I feel like they would try to do something like that. Um, I feel like Black Mirror in the end kind of turned around and actually asked some interesting questions about like like gender fluidity, um, sexual fluidity in terms of sexual attraction and things like that. Um, but overall, that was probably by uh, that was actually by far my least favorite of the season. Um, Rachel, Jack and Ashley, too. I thought it was interesting because it felt like it felt kind of like two very different episodes put into one. I felt like the first half was about this, this teenager who is, you know, goes to this new school. And like the point is like how this like fake robot friend kind of leads to actually further isolation and like detachment from reality um, and, and causes problems in that way. And the second half seemed more like it was about the the issues with fame and and how you reclaim who you are in, in like this current like technological climate when so much of what makes someone famous can be replicated technologically yeah I, I don't know i felt like that episode didn't necessarily tie together or as well as I, I would hope and while miley i thought was pretty good and and pretty funny when she was like little ashley two thing when ashley two like rolls herself around the cord to like pull out miley's like life support i was like <laughs> oh my god I, I i just can't this is just too like too ridiculous too stupid at this point but overall i, I think it was still pretty good so black mirror is still quality just i think these three episodes didn't really live up to my, my hopes or expectations for the show so san junipero and callus uss callister both won multiple emmys from the past two seasons do you think we will get there with Smithereens, which we assume would be the one they would push? Because they do it as outstanding television movie, and they can get away with it because it's an anthology show, so you can still run it in those limited categories. So the competition is never that mm -hmm. strong, yeah. generally speaking. That, that's, but yeah, do, do you think we can get there again? I think that's the only reason we, we could get there, although I, I, would definitely, I would definitely expect something that, like a, a movie that... Uh, is put out by i mean like wouldn't one of the game of thrones episodes technically fall into that category or because it's not anthology they can't they can't well, do no, that. that yeah no i mean thrones is just a drama that just runs a drama see that like that, that that's where the criteria becomes interesting because i guess because these these episodes aren't connected they can say oh this is a tv movie but the the length oh. is the same like i mean uh, what we had three i just realized what it'll be going up against that? though It'll go up against the Deadwood oh, movie, yeah, nah. with HBO's might behind <laughs> it. So that and anything else HBO has as well. So yeah, maybe it, maybe, it, maybe it, it'll get a nomination <laughs> still. Yeah, Deadwood movies got the unlock. Any last thoughts on Black Mirror before we move on? the the next The next season should be coming out around the political the, the political climate. So I expect a little bit more. You know, I always find it interesting. You know, a lot of people don't actually understand that Black Mirror was not a Netflix creation. It was a Channel 4 show that is really the brainchild of Charlie Brooker. And after the first two series in White Christmas, Netflix just bought the show and now owns the show. But the popularity in, in the States is due to Netflix, people watching those first six or seven episodes. But it wasn't actually Netflix's doing. They were just smart enough to have the show. So, you know, it's just funny that they can put on the Netflix watermark on their shows and people... I really none the wiser unless they look it up. You know, it's it's one of their most popular uh, talked about shows every time it comes out. But it's really just a show that they actually just uh, acquired as opposed to uh, greenlit from the start. Just interesting. Dark 
Phoenix. Hey. Twenty-three <laughs> percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, right now, it's projected to lose between one hundred and two hundred million dollars, U.S. dollars. Probably on the low um, end of that, but bad. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it's it's kind of interesting. I so I didn't go see it. I'm gonna let you kind of give your review. Um, I was I, I'm not I, I wouldn't say a huge X Men fan, but I've really enjoyed the movies I have seen. Days of Future Past, uh, First Class. Um, you know, even Apocalypse, which we talked about, and there were a lot of issues with that. I still think there were moments that I enjoyed with that. Mm-hmm. And most of the, the X-Men characters I really love. I mean, we obviously like Deadpool, Logan, we've talked about those movies and how much we've enjoyed those. So to see this be the last iteration of, of this uh, X-Men series, the seventh and final installment here, feels a bit, I don't know, disheartening, sad, because it seems like not many people liked it. Are you? Do you fall into that that category? Yeah, well, it got a B minus in the score, which is atrocious for superhero movies. Big IP, as we know. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it, it's uh, been largely rejected because it's not any good, and it's weird because most people are t- referring to it as the last of this X Men movie, certainly the last of the mainline series. But the New Mutants spinoff, uh, Disney, when they refresh their calendar, put it on for April of next year. I'm Taylor Joy, Maisie Williams, Charlie Heaton, etc. That movie's been through so much negative buzz and, and press. People have all kind of been theorizing that maybe they'll just throw it out on Disney Plus and not even release it. But as of right now, there is a produced, finished film in the series that we ex- we might see in 10 months. Didn't they recently have to do reshoots on that too? <laughs> but like months so the later? Thing about that, the thing about that is they never actually did those reshoots. Oh my God. And we heard about those reshoots, what, like a year and a half ago? Yeah. Oh God. So it, the whole thing's a mess. I mean, you, you. I think Maisie got asked about it during the Thrones press run, and she had like basically nothing to update about, and was kind of pissed that something she worked on was in such limbo. But either way, it, it's the end of the main line X Men films, you know, and certainly the end of the, the reboot run that we had gotten. And yeah, it's just really disappointing because X Men, a series that has had many ups and downs, and has often been confusing inconsequentially usually but has led people astray for sure it's really that first blockbuster franchise of the century i mean, obviously the first one came out in 2000 so obviously but it, it was the first really big blockbuster franchise that in the superhero space before before the mcu and mm-hmm. despite the fact that that original trilogy ended on a, a low note with the last stand was able to bounce back in a great way in 2011 with Matthew Vaughn's first class and the Days of Future Past followed that up, right? And it was always something that like the potential of it was so tantalizing because the X Men as a as a as a brand as a comic series is just so so strong. Beloved, uh, frankly, and X Men used to be the most popular aspect of Marvel. It wasn't the Avengers, mm-hmm. um, and that just speaks to Marvel Studios and Disney how they were able to make the avengers now the dominant part of marvel when it used to be x-men spider-man so impressive anyway uh ultimately like you, you can just pick apart the choices they've made and a lot of that is where we we know the success of marvel and the success and failures of dc recently we, we have so much to to work off now that we can kind of throw stuff at, at x-men say, oh why didn't you do it this way right but i always kind of liked that they were a little different and they felt different um but ultimately, the end results were just so inconsistent. 
and it it just really is a bummer that Dark Phoenix is truly a low point. Like I honestly think this is my least favorite of the whole franchise, which says a lot because the Last Stand and Origins Wolverine are not good movies. So, well, that that uh, Origins Wolverine one is like infamous for like the 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 Deadpool with the Correct. mouth stitched up and making all we- those Weapon Eleven just... and Deadpool the same guy. Ryan Reynolds has ripped up, ripped it to shreds in Deadpool. Since. Yeah. <laughs> So what made Dark Phoenix so bad? They had reshot a lot of it, I think three months worth. But when we get news of that, like that, that's kind of par for the course for any of these big things. You, a lot of times you just kind of run out of time when you have a shoot this large with a all-star cast this big. You just kind of need to go back later. But the more you hear about it, the more you're like, oh, wait, this is going to be worse, which is awfully disappointing because Michael Fassbender, James McAvoy... Nicholas Holt and Jennifer Lawrence, who all started in first class, they only had three picture deals. So they were done after Apocalypse. And Apocalypse was a huge letdown after Days of Future Past, right? But they all re upped for one final for go this. For, for Dark Phoenix once they Fox was able to hire Simon Kinberg, who kind of helped finish Apocalypse because Brian Singer is unreliable, as we now know plenty about. Yet Simon Kinberg, who this was his directorial debut, it just seems like they didn't have this from a story perspective. They didn't have this from a, a vision perspective because there's just so many issues. And I think part of that is, like The Last Stand, the Dark Phoenix story is not something you can just kind of do in one movie. I think it's a 10-episode main run, but it's ultimately established over many other comics. And I think Chris Claremont's run on that is one of the most famous uh, stories X-Men has. And to just kind of take parts of it and combine other things it's just not smart when you have all these other other x-men storylines and characters that you're trying to service and on one hand we have this new cast of sorts with sophie turner's gene gray who has a lot to do in dark phoenix as well as ty sheridan cyclops and cody smith's nightcrawler and alexander ship storm they only were just introduced in apocalypse this is only their second and now last movie as this new cast and they were not given that much to do last last movie so you have them not really growing that much. We have McAvoy and Fassbender, Holt and Lawrence. And Lawrence definitely peaked in Days of Future Past. And Fassbender was really just relegated to goon status in Apocalypse. Like it just, they never were able to juggle the, the team aspect of X-Men, which is so important. Like X-Men is not a, a series that should be told as solo movies, with the exception of, you know, things like Logan. And it just seemed, they just combined it all these concepts together and meanwhile the villain played by jessica chastain is critically underexplained, and ultimately the performance is just so neutral which was clearly by choice but just there's nothing compelling about about the villain villainy they're very one note very obvious nothing we hadn't seen before so they don't really add anything and it just it's funny because the movie is ultimately much smaller scale than past X-Men movies, certainly past Apocalypse. Apparently that was a studio note going into this. They're like, oh, what's what what's what's get more more intimate, less explosion-y, that'll do better. But you still have to have a good script. And I think part of that is not having Dark Phoenix start and end in one film. So quite the bummer, man. Whether you're a casual fan or a hardcore fan, it's just kind of baffling that it turned out this poor yeah chastain i think is a really interesting aspect of this film uh 
the character that she portrays is like a and uh, I don't know, basically taking a bunch of characters from the the comic books and kind of smash them together yeah. to like manipulate Jean. Um, and mm-hmm. I think when you get someone like Jessica Chastain to one, it seems like underwrite her role, um, and, and but then to like make that that person flat and just kind of take away everything that Jessica Chastain has, which is like charisma and like incredible acting chops and just kind of boil her down to like this, like uh, from what you're describing, very bland characters, really disappointing. And, you know, it goes back to what you were saying, the thing to, I guess, to put that point home, how they've had the difficulty juggling all these different characters at once, because like you talked about, if they had done like a two or three movie run up of the story like telling it over time you could have had multiple people in those roles and really added to the the confusion and and the the turmoil that that gene gray is in and instead um you they seems like they really butchered that beyond belief and that's just i think kind of sums up everything that's been wrong with the sexman franchise the last two movies first class really nails it as a as a reboot or refresh after the huge disappointment that was last stand as well as origins wolverine right right and then days of future past is which is my favorite x-men movie after logan is just really dynamite for a lot of reasons but also really juggles and puts a bow on the past trilogy you know when we get to see patrick stewart and ian mckellen and halle berry comes back and sean ashmore comes back and ellen page comes back right and having Days of Future Past, another famous X-Men story, actually be told in a really awesome way, despite the changes. Uh, and, and then you put the bow on that. And we had that last scene where we see, you know, Anna Paquin's rogue. And we see James Marsden, Cyclops, and Famke Jansen. And we see all them in, in, in the school again. And you're like, wow, yeah, the continuity doesn't make a lot of sense. But that's okay, because like, it just feels like they, they, they put the bow on it. Fine. Great. And then, again, we get Patrick Stewart one last time in Logan. But... Mm-hmm. it felt like a great way to tie off that tr- that trilogy which wasn't honestly even needed but it was really cool to see then you're like all right we're gonna keep it going because we like mcavoy and fastbender and holt and lawrence cool but then you try and do the age of apocalypse in one movie and not yeah. only that you do it in such an uninspired way that you don't give oscar isaac anything any any opportunity to succeed olivia munn plays psylocke kind of a cult character in x-men and does nothing yep. then you introduce uh reintroduce angel in a poor way and storm comes back to the ship and she has no lines really to speak of and it just if apocalypse maybe wasn't apocalypse and maybe we established this new team as i said it could have been cool and they cast lana condor as jubilee in apocalypse yet they cut all of her scenes to the point where she has no lines in the movie and then we see 12 buzz we love before like oh lana condor really personable actress would have been great to see her actually be in X-Men and <laughs> say anything. So it just like Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix, that they just were telling different stories or just were made better. This Fox series might be continuing to a point where we'd be like, oh, well, maybe it's a shame that Marvel is taking over because we still kind of like this Fox run, you know, but they, they, they fucked it up with Apocalypse and didn't help themselves this time around. So it just kind of fizzled out in quite a quick way. So don't know what else to say it's disappointing what do you think disney does with the uh, x-men from here well as, as we've said I mean, check out our marvel phase four video on youtube.com slash nostalgia pod but we know x-men isn't coming around anytime soon right like we know it's going to be a while and that's that's honestly good they have some time to stew on how to go about this right 
but as I said before, I think you can't just try and have like a Cyclops movie, like the way you had Iron Man movies, right? I feel I really feel like X Men is best as a team. So you're gonna have to hit this casting hard and reestablish this and cast a lot of these people right away because I feel like we just need to start off in Xavier's school. Yeah, that's when X Men is at its most compelling when it's a group of misfits and. The, the, the continuity, the, the timelines, the, the multiverse of it all, Foggy will figure it out. That's fine. But I feel like the X-Men DNA of it needs to be the traditional sense because I just have a really hard time seeing them doing one character at a time and then building it back up and making it feeling as a, as a true team. Like X-Men is, 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 is a real team all the time, whereas Avengers is a team that comes together from soul Sometimes. people, right? right? So I think you just got to start with the school. So yeah. you're gonna need an Xavier and uh, other people. Maybe you don't do Gene right away. Maybe you don't do Logan right away. I don't know, but you're gonna need X and you're gonna need the school. Yeah, I I think this could actually be uh you know X Men as a IP could be one of the first ones we see where they do like a TV show that leads into the movies. You know, mm. using Disney Plus because I think the Idea. Xavier School for the Gifted is like made to be a television show, um, and then how they built a cartoon which, many times <laughs> yeah which characters hit from there would be perfect to like build the the series back sure. up so why don't we jump into our last topic of the day the souvenir joanna hogg pretty established uh director over in the uk um, but this seems to be one of the first films that's getting a lot of uh international attention souvenir starring honor swinton burn uh, the daughter of Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton is also in this as her mother. Uh, so it's it's all in the family here. Also starring uh, Tom Burton. Pretty interesting Tom film. Book. Yeah, about the uh, the relationship between Julia and Anthony. Uh, Julia, this mid-20s film student over in the UK. And Anthony, this like foreign ministry worker for the UK. And yep. about their relationship but also anthony's uh, battle with addiction and how that impacts julia the story is told completely from julia's perspective and i think what i find most interesting about this is it's also uh based on a lot of joanna hogg's own experiences the ringer had a really nice piece on this actually i'd recommend you go read it how did you feel about this film the souvenir yeah you know it's one of those movies that you have no idea about it until the sundance buzz happens then a24 purchases it through in a release it and you're like oh okay cool i'll check this out like it's a movie you you, you just can't know about until they show it at a festival yeah people start raving about it right mm-hmm. so it's always it, that's always something i look forward to every year it's just these movies you have no no don't know what to expect and i went into the souvenir quite blind i didn't watch the trailer i just knew everyone loved it and i knew till swinton was in it that's really about it and uh you know you watch the movie and i think a critique I have in a certain sense is that it's not always super engaging, mm. but it always keeps you in this world. I think it's funny because the way they shoot this movie, you see it a lot in the apartment, which is primarily the main setting. We're set in a 1980s London, mm-hmm. primarily. And they have a lot of camera shots where you see two rooms for Anthony and Julie, and they're like they're. One's in the kitchen, one's in like the bathroom or something, one's sitting, one's standing. And the way they show that with like the, the wall in the middle almost kind of reminded me of Esmael's like top-down shots of buildings mm. at times. 
where you show multiple settings in mm-hmm. one frame. I just really like that. And the way they, uh, Hog would do like quick pans. And I, I don't actually know if she did her own cinematography. But anyway, uh, that really stood out to me in terms of it just, it had its own visual flair, which stands out for a movie that ultimately is just people in rooms or outside. Like, there's we're not, we're not watching any action here. It's just a lot of dialogue and walking and talking. And ultimately, I think the strength of the movie is the dialogue in the sense that this movie does not show its cards and tells you what it's about or even what's going to happen right away. And again, I hadn't watched the trailer, so I really had no idea where we were going. Uh, and that's actually really, really exciting just because I think that's a, it's a, a smart technique that you don't see that often. You know, you have, I think there's a lot of confidence to have an addiction movie be so subdued. Um you know, we're, we're watching this a few months after seeing, or half a year after seeing Beautiful Boy, a very melodramatic, showy movie about addiction, movie we both still liked, but very different storytelling. And Souvenir, like I said, I think there's moments where I don't want to call it indulgent, but I just, sometimes the conversations they were having, I just didn't find that interesting. So maybe it takes you out at times, but it's still very compelling the relationship these two have and how like, I guess Julie is addicted to her boyfriend who's literally addicted. I'm not sure if that's actually the message or not, but it's uh, definitely a movie you can't help but admire just for the choices it makes. Even if it's not something that I love start to finish all the time. Yeah. What about you? Uh, I went in, I went in blind like you. Um, I, I think he, to go, to back to what you were saying about the cinematography that probably felt like the strongest piece to me um you know talking about addiction and, and just kind of what people know about addiction there's a lot of a lot of shame there's a lot of hiding there's a lot of lying within it and i in a lot of ways it's hidden i mean even like you said the they slow play what this movie's about you don't even figure out until like i think like 30 or 40 minutes in that you know, Anthony is really dealing with this. There's like clues that there might be something there, but yeah, really the track marks and stuff. Yeah. But then his friends like, yeah, I don't really get like, he, you know, heroin addict and you like, what's, what's the, the catch there. And like, that's when you're like, Oh, well now, now they, they put all their cards on the table. Now you kind of see what this is about. But even after that, it's not like she confronts him about it. It's, it's like still yeah. a slow build. And, um, the way that hog uses reflections in this stood out to me a lot. Cause she has a lot of shots where, you don't actually see the characters, but you'll see like a window reflection and that will be how you see like Julianne and, and her mother interacting or um, you'll see like Anthony and her like in a room together, but you also see the reflection. It's kind of like distorted and muffled. And I felt like that really added an aspect of um, kind of probably what it feels like to be in a relationship with somebody who is suffering from addiction. There's a lot of things that happen that um you know are hidden for shame reasons or or are hidden for uh the fact that maybe you you want to support this person and don't know the best way how so you don't talk about it you don't address it and i think um to kind of use that as a as a cinematography trick or style it was really smart i agree i found this to be a slog at times um and while their relationship was engaging uh I just kind of found myself being kind of bored. And uh, I think if there was one thing I would have liked, I think I would have liked to have, I don't even, I don't know, maybe even just like 
more music in this or something like that. Something that kept me a little bit more engaged. There was a lot of silence in this movie. Um, and while when the music was there, it was good. Yeah, it was great. Um, there's that scene where I think she's like writing and that like the radio is playing and like I found and they were shooting it like from the desk, the perspective of the desk looking up yeah. at her. And I was like, that's a really cool shot, like a memorable moment from this movie. So I, I think that might have added something to it. Overall, though, I think just Joanna Hogg as a, as a filmmaker and a stylist in, in terms of film is what I'm kind of left with, even if I didn't find the story super engaging. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny because like alongside the addiction drama, we have Julie's film school right. venture and we have her conversations with her teachers and we have her conversations with her friends in the flat, right? Mm-hmm. and a lot of these conversations are very top-level whimsical things and thematically driving the movie. And I don't know if the union of her, her film at the end totally worked with me in terms of how it relates to the her relationship with her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. You know, it, it's a movie that is really all dialogue, so you really have to catch everything as it comes at you. Yeah. Tilda Swinton's role as the mom is is very small role, but very, I think, pointed in terms of what she's trying to do in terms of being a, a, a kind but judgmental mm-hmm. figure in her daughter's life. And yeah, you know, again, it's a movie that it's very, it's very artsy. Yeah. And not for everyone. Again, we, 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 we have our own issues with it just from an entertainment perspective. Mm-hmm. But ultimately... Uh, I think it's still a movie I'm going to look, look back on finally. I do have it in my top 10 right now. And funny enough, it's getting a fucking sequel, <laughs> which is shooting right now. Uh, it's about Julie's extended adulthood, which I think is cool because her character, I think, is very well written. And mm-hmm. There's a lot of potential in terms of where we take her next now that her, you know, spoilers, Anthony's dead. Mm-hmm. So right. what's, what's, what's happening, right? But the news that Robert Pattinson, the goat, has been cast in this sequel, and they're already making it, so maybe we see this movie next year. Um, it's awfully exciting. Yeah. Bruce Wayne, for sure. You know, the, the more we talk it out, it seems like the theme that probably stood out most to me is just like the story and growth of this young woman. You know, she starts off in the beginning talking about she wants to make this movie about this this young man whose relationship with this mother kind of like as the mother dies like something happens and he has to become more independent and i think in a way like the the parallels between her you know story and with with anthony and and where she ends up she's a lot more confident at the end of this film she seems to find herself you know even in like the scenes in the film school you can tell she seems to be kind of coming into her own and i think that like you said that's that's the exciting part for a sequel is seeing how that character continues to grow and cont- what that character continues to do um and also i think her and swin obviously being mother and daughter had a lot of chemistry in this and i would like to see that relationship yeah. fleshed out a little bit more moving forward too so uh Quite the movie, maybe not my favorite, but I think there's a lot to appreciate there. And if you get a chance, if it's by you and you got some time, I'd say you could check it out. Um, if not, it'll it'll definitely be on my, you know, probably like Amazon Prime or something like that in the next couple months. So uh, those those art films are, are coming out finally. What will we be talking about next week, Dave? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, next week we have two notable movies. One is Men in Black International with Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson. We'll see how that turns out. We do like those people. Uh, Late Night, Emma Thompson, Mindy Kaling movie, Mindy Kaling penned movie from Amazon, also out of Sundance. That's finally getting a actually wide release, so that's interesting. Uh, it actually had a really strong limited release this past weekend, which is atypical for Amazon, so that's actually good that they're getting a return on their investment in the movie business for once. Uh, Gold Link is dropping an album, first in two years. Very excited for that. He's a very, very fun rapper. And Bastille is dropping an album. I know you're super excited Woo! about that. We probably won't <laughs> talk about it, though. <laughs> and uh, Easy Season 3 came out uh, what, about yeah. a month ago on Netflix. We're finally going to talk about it, a show we uh, talked about the first two seasons that we both quite enjoyed. So definitely wanted to give that a look. And Euphoria with Zendaya on HBO premieres on Sunday. So we'll talk about that at yeah. some point. Maybe we'll do like a couple episode catch up or like a mid-season review with that one, depending on what the buzz is with it. Um, before we wrap up, again, if you're listening, hit that subscribe button on YouTube. Go to SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod. Follow us all the ways you want there. And also go to Twitter at NostalgiaPod. To keep up with all the movie news, movie, TV, and music news we don't talk about on here. We love you. We appreciate you. Peace out. Yeah.